Today is part 19 in our Revelation series, and I entitled today's message, The Great Kingdom Clash. And I want to begin with a statement that sounds almost stupid coming out of my mouth, yet I believe it to be deeply true. And the statement is this, war is terrible. War is terrible. Do I know from personal experience? Absolutely not. I know of none of that. I know it from my friends. I know it from those I've counseled. I know it from people who have been there. I myself have served in no military capacity. Unfortunately, I have a huge respect for the military. I have not seen war. It's not been on my turf. As a matter of fact, the generation I grew up in, we have only seen war on television. Now, we grew up in a media environment to where they tell us what the war means. We don't actually get to engage with the war. We don't actually get to feel sorry for anybody because it's one side fighting against the other side in politics and telling us why this war is good for that side or bad for that side. We can't even engage with the atrocities that occur. We are so bombarded with visuals that the stuff we see on TV from CNN about war looks an awful lot like the movies that we pay to go see and it does not feel real do i know that war is terrible for personal reasons i do not but i've seen the scars i've seen the shattered lives i've walked with people through ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder i've seen the chaos that it creates and those are the ones still alive When we talk about war, we must realize that war always involves more than just the main players. It always spreads out. Wouldn't it be wonderful if perhaps in an age where we know that war is necessary, war is necessary, we've seen it in Scripture, it's all over the Old Testament, God is not against war, God just wants to make sure that if there's going to be a war, it better be for a darn good reason, and that God has to make the call, right? Now, if He makes the call, all of a sudden there's war. We've noticed that very few nations have been in more warfare than Israel. As a matter of fact, do you guys remember the story about David and Bathsheba? Everybody kind of remembers the whole affair thing. Do you remember the first line of that story? The first thing it says, as David went out on his balcony, it was springtime when the kings go out to war. They went out to war every season. They were in constant warfare. It was a necessity, but that doesn't make it not terrible. And it would be nice in this broken world if we could merely have good guys fight bad guys and actually only engage with the bad guys. That's not how it works. There is all types of difficulty. There's all types of chaos that spills over into innocent people. It's just a fact of war. The fill in the blank in front of you hits this point home because it's no different in a heavenly battle. It's no different in cosmic warfare. When kingdoms collide, there is collateral damage. When kingdoms collide, there is collateral damage. Good people die. Innocent people die. That is the truth. And it is so the truth. With this heavenly war that is going on between God and Satan. We are caught up in a war that is real. We are caught up in a war with casualties. We are caught up in a war 
where innocent people are being harmed. There is a bad guy. It is not a superpower versus a superpower. It is a rebel against the empire of God. Satan is a created being. We do not have two gods colliding. We have a creator and a created being fighting against him. We must be very clear in our minds. In this portion of Revelation that we are about to study, it will begin to answer for you questions that you've probably always wondered. This time through teaching Revelation, I have found why it's a useful title. There are so many answers found in this book. If you wonder, does God care? If you wonder, why do I feel like everything is coming against me? If you feel like, man, I feel like somebody's after me. If you have all these feelings that something is wrong, that there's something amiss in this world, if you feel like things are ferocious in the air around you, you begin to understand why. You begin to understand why Satan is angry. You begin to find out why God is angry and why this warfare has lasted for so many thousands of years. Well, if you are just joining us, this book of Revelation though it appears complicated, is rather revealing. What we have seen is that one of Jesus' closest friends received a series of visions when he was in exile for his faith. As these visions come out to us, we've seen three major visions line up. Seven seals broken off a scroll. Seven trumpets blown by angels. We are now in the seventh trumpet. This trumpet will last till the end of of time. It will shut down the world as it echoes out. Included in that is a series of seven bowls of wrath that God will pour out on unbelieving mankind. Now, in this portion we are about to read, we will be introduced to all the main characters that are going to be involved for the rest of our time together. So, having said all of that, would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. Drop it all the way open to the right. You should be there. It's page 872 if you want to be specific. It's Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. We're just going to go through 12.9. So 11.15 through 12.9 today. I had to pick a place to stop, otherwise we'd be here all day. So, let's see what we have. What I'll do is I'll read through the Word of God, and then we'll tear it apart and see what God has for us. All right, here we go. The seventh trumpet, uh, seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. 
a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may we understand the battle, the tension. May we understand, Lord, why it is that we feel caught up in something larger than us. May we adhere to you so tightly that, Father, that we are shielded by who you are. Though Satan may rage, Lord, and though Satan and his demons are tougher than we are, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Father, today I ask that you would open our eyes again afresh as to what is really going on, that we might live differently. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of this stuff familiar to you? We've probably heard a lot about Satan and the devil. A lot of people still don't believe that Satan is real. I will tell you this. I've seen far too much of the demonic to ever doubt the existence of Satan. And if you want to see more of that kind of stuff, well, hang around Jesus a lot more because they tend to show up. Now, I will pause for one quick announcement before we get into this. I know my shirt is bright. <laughs> I would like to point out it is for the purpose of keeping you awake. All right. But as I walk back and forth, beware, because I will be flashing and you will begin to see trails. All right. So, all right. Having said all of that, let's dive into this. It says right off the bat, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. So there we have it. We've been waiting. We saw the first six trumpets hit. Now the seventh launches. It will actually continue out and the effects will not be heard until chapter 16. We're in kind of this parenthesis place still, but he blows the seventh trumpet and there are loud voices instead of catastrophe on the earth, loud voices erupt in heaven. Who are they? Well, it's likely the whole chorus of people in heaven, meaning the angels, the living creatures, the saints that are there all begin to shout out in glory of God and they launch into a worship service. Almost every time before God is about to fire down wrath or anger or judgment, there is a worship service first where God will remind his people that he is good, remind his people that he is merciful, remind people that he is just. He's not just going to randomly just start hitting people without letting them know why. 
So he makes it very clear what type of God he is. And everybody begins to shout his praise. It says, the kingdom of the world, they praise, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Anybody think that's weird when it says his Christ? Christ is a title, which means Messiah or anointed one. So it is saying it has now become the kingdom of our Lord God and of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Well, there's a couple things that seem a little bit is it says it has become the kingdom of God. And you immediately go, wait a second, I thought God always ran everything. When in the world did Satan have any authority over anything? Unfortunately, we are constantly in this mindset. I shouldn't say unfortunately. Unfortunately for the context, we're in the mindset where God just runs everything and everything's fine. Do we understand that Satan has authority here on earth. Do we understand that? Are we all clear on that? Because this does not seem to be a marvelous statement unless a kingdom is being clashed with another kingdom and being moved out. Indeed, this is a kingdom clash. It says that now the kingdom of the world, who was ruled by Satan, has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. You go, really? When... So Satan, wait a second, he's the prince of the air. Okay, I've heard that. But how much authority did he really have? Let me cite a story for you. Before Jesus started his ministry, he did something rather unusual. He went out into the desert and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Do you remember that? Then who showed up? Satan showed up and he comes up to him and he begins to tempt him. Now, why did he tempt him? Because we have the God man where Jesus is now touchable and tangible, and Satan's going to try to destroy him at every way he can. Now, as he engages with him, he begins to tempt him in three different ways. The first way is he said, hey, I see that you're hungry. Why don't you just use your magic powers and turn these stones into bread and utilize them for your own selfish gain? Why don't you just go ahead and do that and put on a little show for me? That'd be awesome. Well, he knows that Jesus is hungry. Jesus at that point said what? He responded with the word of God and he said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Shuts Satan down. That's a hard one. Then Satan comes back and he has Jesus up on a high place and he says, dive off. Come on, just jump off, dive off, because it's not like the angels aren't going to catch you. Why don't you show me how big and bad you are? I've already seen battle in heaven. I know you're the commander of the army of God, so just display it. Dive off and let your guys catch you. Jesus said, you're not going to tempt the Lord your God. We're not doing this. And shut him down again. But it's the third temptation that's rather eye-opening. It says that... Satan took Jesus to a place where he could see all the kingdoms of the world, which meant anything that was invisible sight in the Middle Eastern world. He said, see all these kingdoms? I'll give all of it to you. If you bow down and worship me, be my right hand man. We'll run the show. Now, what's so stunning about it is that it wouldn't be a temptation if Satan didn't have anything to offer. Right? So what did he have to offer? Satan had been moving and building kingdoms of his own, raising up 
people that would follow other gods, be pagan worshipers, diving into the worship of demons. They began to rise up these mighty cities, persecute the people, go astray, do their own thing. Satan's running the whole show. And he said, Jesus, I'll just hand it over to you. We just do a shortcut. I understand that your whole goal here is to basically make sure you do everything right. And eventually your father's going to glorify you. Why don't we just shortcut it? Do you understand that the majority of sin temptation in our lives is about shortcuts? That's usually where Satan will tempt you. Because Jesus knew that if he adhered to God's word exactly, if he followed his father's will, doing it the long way, his name would be exalted above every name. He would be king of kings and lord of lords. But he had to do it the proper way, which involves suffering and difficulty. Or he could take Satan's shortcut. Think about the temptations that you've fallen into. You know that there are certain ways that maybe if you ran a business like God, it would take longer to build up a clientele. Or you could jump the gun, cut people off, do what everyone else does, and take Satan's shortcut and get there a lot faster. That's a temptation. You think of sexual sin. The idea is I could build a proper relationship, design it all the way through, do it the way that God desires me to do it, and have a fulfilling, healthy relationship that doesn't damage everyone around it, but Satan offers you a shortcut. Consistently, the shortcut is thrown out there. What are you going to do about it? What did Jesus do? As our perfect example, he said, absolutely not. I'm trusting my Father at every step of the way. Even in times when he cried out in the garden, is there any other way? Do you remember that? Yet he was true to the obedience of God. And ultimately, he got what Satan offered him to a far greater degree. He took over the world. You are watching his kingdom now here in Revelation where Jesus advances and begins to force his will upon the world. Before he allowed a lot of stuff to stir. Now you see here where he's engaging, taking his power and might and pushing against the enemy's camp and shoving him back. That creates tension. That creates a spillage. That creates viciousness and collateral damage on the saints and the non-believing alike. It says this. And the 24 elders, once this statement was made, you remember these guys. It's possible they represent... The church worldwide, time-wide, in the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel representatives. The 24 elders that sit in thrones around the throne room of God, it says. The 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. And they fell on their faces. Let's take a, a, a time out here to hit something very practical. I get a lot of questions that are fired into my email bin. And so I fire them back to you. And this, the end of this next year and into the next year, we're going to be posting a lot of those online. There's about 300 of them so far. There are questions. A lot of the questions that I get are about posture in prayer, posture in worship. When these guys fall down, face down, you remember a, a number of weeks ago when I actually did the whole lay down on my face and bend my mic? Right. That's what actually happened. So we're not going to do that today. The posture in prayer is very significant. They fall down prostrate before God, throwing down. It's the ultimate attitude of submission, laying down because it's that I will not even stand up to you. You hear that phrase? 
stand up. I will not have anything in resistance to you. I'm all yours. That's the falling down. So let's talk a little bit about why posture matters. Now, do you have to use a certain posture in prayer? No, you do not. You can pray when you're driving. You can pray, well, hopefully, right? As long as you keep your eyes open, right? You can pray when you're driving. You can pray when you're working. You can pray here at church. You can pray sitting down, standing up. But posture is helpful because we're physical human beings. Physical human beings mean that what you do with your body affects your mind. For example, there's a lot of studies about if you smile, it has a tendency to lift your spirit over time. If you frown, it has a tendency to draw you down. There's all kinds of weird connections that we have in our body. Posture is no different for prayer. So a lot of times we kneel down before God. Why? Because we're trying to take a humble position. The idea is you're big, I'm not. Let me now kneel down before you. But we notice that during worship, a lot of people end up doing things like clapping or raising their hands. What's that all about? Well, once again, it's a posture. Like for me, sometimes when I do it, I'm really into worship. Sometimes I'm doing it because I'm crying out to God and trying to get in a groove. All right? I'm trying to get in a groove with the Lord. So why would we raise our hands? Well, there's a bunch of different reasons, and it's different for every individual. For example, the technical way that originally started was when you raise your hands up to God, it was this idea of surrender. You know, when someone sticks a gun in your face, you raise your hands. I surrender, right? That's the idea. I have nothing. I'm not going to grab anything. I don't have any weapons. I'm out. It's a surrender symbol, but it became much more. For example, you'll see people who raise their hands like this, and then you'll see people who raise their hands with their palms up. What does that mean? It's the idea of lifting something up to heaven and giving an offering. There's another thing. Last night as I finished the message, a gentleman met me out in the lobby and he said, do you know why I raise my hands in worship? He said, because whenever my little boy falls down and skins his knee, he always raises his hands to be picked up. He said, for me, I raise my hands symbolically saying, Dad, will you pick me up? It's different for everybody, but your posture, sometimes I'll be in my office, my door is shut. I will kneel down because I need to get in a different mindset, something different from what I was just doing. And I will kneel down on my chair or I'll kneel down on the floor with my forehead to the ground. It is a posture thing. Now, does this mean if you have your arms up, does that mean that you're more spiritual than somebody else? No, it doesn't. It's what you feel comfortable with. I have noticed that when people are more demonstrative in their worship, I get all excited being in a worship service with them. I happen to be a demonstrative guy. So when I see you raise your hands and I'm standing in the back or whatever, I almost ricochet off you and I start getting into it, right? Because now you're getting into it. It's creating an atmosphere. Now I'm getting into it and it makes it a lot easier for me. So I actually love it when I get to see hands raised. Some of you are not that personality. You're not from that background. And so for some of you, this is about as far as you're ever going to go. All right. You got a little bit of this one going on, which means if people look across the crowd, they ain't going to see that. Right. God sees it. This is in my heart. This is all you got right now. All right. This is way high for me. So I'm going to go ahead and go this one. All right. Now, there's a couple of hybrids that you can do. Right. This this one right here. This is a later one, right? A lot of people do this one. This is the I'm carrying something with my other hand one. Or, because you got your Bible in that hand. Or, I'm a little tired today, so I'm going to go ahead and just raise up one. No, it's not. It's actually this idea of almost like pointing up to the sky. And this idea of, yes, right there, that is God. 
He is amazing. And it's this shouting and proclaiming with one hand. So do you understand? Everybody is doing it for a different reason. And it's good. If you need it and it's useful, utilize it. If you don't, it's all right. It's not the end of the world. You can do however you want to do that. Just engage your heart with Jesus. All right? We good on that one? That had nothing to do with the lesson. Let's move on. All right. Woo, we've gone two verses. Here we go. They fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. What's missing? And who is to come. Of course, you don't say that if he's there. Okay? So the whole point is that he came, and so you don't say who is to come because he has arrived. So you cut that one out. Because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. You are now forcing your rule upon the world. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. All right, what are the nations angry about? What does that mean? It means the world's sick and tired of God. That's what it means. You go, why? Because God is irritating it to them. Why? Because they selfishly want their own way and God's not going along with their plan. So there's an irritant. Remember what we just read last week. These two witnesses are coming down talking about sin and judgment. They're shutting down the sky from rain. They're causing famines. God is rocking the world. They are so sick and tired of any talk about God. Get the Jews out of here. Get the Christians out of here. I'm sick of hearing about it. You live your life. I'll live my life and leave me alone. Well, when God starts pushing into their world, that's really going to irritate them. The nations rage against God and God's wrath comes down. He reminds them who is king. No, I am coming. You have been destroying. You have been harming. I will then bring my wrath down upon the world. What's interesting is the word wrath. There's two words in Greek for anger, thumos and orge. Thumos means a rage of passion that is actually used of God in Revelation, but only four times. But it's interesting. God does have emotion to him. Seven times, however, is the word orge, which is used here, which is a settled rage, which is I'm angry about what is occurring here. I'm not ticked off to where you've got my goat or I'm now responding to what you just said. There is a settledness that this is not going to happen anymore. All right. Now, God is both of those. The time has come, they said, for judging the dead. What does that mean? It says, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Now, immediately when we see that, we think immediately environmentalism. You're destroying the earth. Okay, that may be partly implied here however the actual greek phraseology means killing those on the earth so it's actually talking about people although i think that stewardship is a crucial part of this right i'm not going to take that away what is the point i see a suggestion right here again because it's all over the bible that there are two judgments there's a judgment for the believing and the unbelieving Did you see that? There is a judgment for destroying those who destroy the earth. That is the unbelieving. There will be a judgment where God will hold people accountable for their sin. The only people that will be held accountable for their sin are those that have not fused with Christ. Yeah? 
That's why we are saved. We fused with Christ, created a new corporation where all his righteousness extends over us. We are cleansed by his blood and pure. Those that do not have that covering will have to answer for their sin. And the wages of sin is death. But the believer will not have that judgment. This is very false, this idea about how we're going to have our life played in front of us and we're going to have to, all the sin we do is going to be exposed to everybody. That's garbage. It's not true. Jesus died for that. The reward judgment is what awaits believers. The idea of talking about their faith and their works and saying, hey, well done, kids. You did excellent here. You know what? This is a huge missed opportunity, but I'll tell you right over here, this was excellent. And you have a father congratulating you and saying, well done. That judgment is awaiting for believers, not the judgment over their sin. That has been paid and that is gone as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. All right, we got that? Now, it says, then God's temple, which is the one in heaven, God's temple in heaven was opened. And the temple always signifies his presence, right? And within his temple was seen what? The Ark of the Covenant. Everybody remember that? Raiders of the Lost Ark, that gold box, yeah? The gold box, it was acacia wood overlaid with gold. There are three things in it. What are those three things? The Ten Commandments, that stands for the law of God. A copy of the Ten Commandments is in the Ark of the Covenant. There's also a jar of manna, and there is the staff of Aaron that was budded that shows that he was a priest. So we have the idea of law in the box and Jesus and God's presence on the top of the box. So we have justice and mercy together. The top of the covenant, uh, box of the covenant was what? Called the mercy seat. We now have mercy and justice being shown in the end for God saying, when I judge, I judge rightly, for I am a God that is just and merciful. What then did they see? The time, uh, it says, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Very similar to Mount Sinai, very similar to Jesus dying on the cross. All right? We have God's wrath beginning to break out. Then signs start coming out. As a matter of fact, from here on out, there will be seven signs that hit in Revelation. We're going to see two of them right now. A sign points to something beyond itself. For example, you're driving down the road. It says L.A., so many miles. The point is not to study the sign and go, wow, look, it's green and it kind of reflects at night. No, the idea is to look past the sign to where it's pointing. So you'll hear this phrase as you read through the Bible. There were signs and wonders. Anybody ever heard that one? Those are different. A sign points to a meaning or points to a direction, whereas a wonder makes you go, wow. Okay, they're very different. A wonder is about creating awe. A sign is to point to something. So that is different than a miracle. Miracles can be signs, they can be wonders, or they can be merely used to change things. So signs, wonders, and miracles are different. This is a sign. There's not really a woman that was pregnant. There's not really a red dragon running and flying about. 
These are signs to point to something. So it says what? A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, and it was a woman. As a matter of fact, from here on out, there are four visions of women. This woman, Jezebel, the scarlet woman, and the bride of the lamb. Four times a woman is shown in a vision in the book of Revelation. It says a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. These are signs of beauty and glory of being exalted. And a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Who is this? But Israel. How do we know? The 12 stars would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is almost an exact quote from Isaiah 66. Last time when Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, it said that Israel was a woman in birth pain waiting to be, have a child. So this is almost identical to what we've already seen in the Old Testament. We know it's Israel. Israel has been raised up by God that she might have the Messiah come out of her. And therefore, in this exalted state, she's going to get attacked. It says, then another sign, the second of the seven, appeared in heaven. An enormous what? Red dragon. Why red? Red is a sign of bloodshed in the book of Revelation. So we have a murderous dragon, an enormous red dragon. And dragon is going to be used 13 times in Revelation to describe Satan. We know that it is Satan. It tells us that it's Satan. And there's a lot of dragon talk in the Old Testament. Anybody ever done any examinations of how much dragons are talked about in the ancient world? There's a ton of them. You got to kind of wonder what that's all about. Anyway, that's a whole different message. All right. An enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on each of his heads. That word for crowns is diadems. It means a prince or king. It's a royalty thing. In other words, he is the prince of the world. They have given him all that authority. Why seven heads? Why this whole seven, ten, seven thing? We got two choices. Either it stands for nations, kings that he rules, and later on we're going to see ten coincide with specific nations. But seven is the number of completion. Does it mean he has total earthly authority? Yeah, likely. I would say both those are blended in there. So we now have Satan who has been handed over complete authority on earth and is running the show. That's all it's trying to say. Now it's going to jump all the way around in history. You ready to go? We'll learn a little bit more about who this dragon is. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. You mean like in the past or in the future? I don't know. I will suggest to you it's the past. Why? Because in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, the story is told where it suggests that when Satan rebelled against God, one third of the angels, who are a lot of times referred to as stars, were cast out of heaven with him. Now, a lot of us go, of course, we know one third of the, one third demons. We know all that. That's obvious. Actually, it's not quite as obvious as you think. Do you realize that the majority of reason we believe that is because of the poem Paradise Lost, which isn't even biblical? 
Okay, so let's be very careful on where we're getting our references from. However, I do believe that that is accurate because there are references in Scripture. I believe that in describing who this dragon is, he said, let me remind you, he is the one that led the great heaven rebellion, that one third of the angels fell along with him. His tail, his influence swept them out of heaven. All right. Then it says what? The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so he might devour the child the moment it was born. What a creepy picture. You now have this image of heaven. A woman is about to give birth. She's in pain. And instead of a doctor waiting there, there's an enormous dragon waiting to devour the child the minute it comes out. Just a horrific image. Yeah? Why? What's it signifying? Satan once the God-man, once the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, emerges on earth, he's now attackable. So he is waiting. Did Satan try to take Jesus out at the moment of his birth? Absolutely. We know that story from the Christmas story, right? Which is what? After Jesus was born, what did Herod say? Kill all the Hebrew baby boys. Do you remember that? And they were slaughtered in mass. There was so much bloodshed when Jesus was born because he was trying to devour and destroy the Christ child. Not only that, but all along the way, then they try to attack him. They run to Egypt and then all of a sudden Judas betrays him and Satan thought he got him on the cross. He finally got to take out the God man. But that ended up being what? His ultimate failure. It says... She gave birth to a son, a male child, that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. What do we know about iron? It's tough. What's a scepter? It's a king's sign of authority and rule. So this is an unending, unbending rule. The Messiah will reign forever and ever. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. That word snatched up means caught up. It's the same word that's used in Thessalonians talking about the same concept of a rapture being pulled up. We know this event. What is the event when Jesus was caught up to God? It's called the ascension. After Jesus Christ died, he appeared to all his disciples and in front of them rose up into heaven into the clouds and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So right here, you almost have this huge history laid out in two sentences. Jesus Christ was born. Satan tried to kill him. Didn't work. He was snatched or caught up by God in the ascension. And he's protected in heaven. And he has a name above all names. But now what? Now that he's gone, that was the attack. If you can't attack the man, what do you do? You attack what he loves. If you can't kill Christ, you kill his kids. That's the focus. It says what? Then the woman, meaning Israel, fled into the desert. Now, we always think of the desert as a bad thing. That's not the case here. The desert was a safe place. It says, to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days, which we know as three and a half years. We've been saying that the last few weeks. Three and a half years, three and a half years, three and a half years. I will suggest to you this is the second half of the tribulation. Tribulation is seven years. This is the back three and a half years. 
the remnant of Israel will be shielded and protected by God when they have to flee. Why do they have to flee the temple area? Because the Antichrist will step in and shut it down. All right? Now, now it says in verse 7, and there was a war in heaven. Future or past? This is a tough one again. I'm going to suggest that it's past. Could it be future? Yes. Do you remember when Jesus was talking with his disciples? They came back from going out two by two and they came back and they said, Lord, the demons cast out in your name. We can cast demons out. Isn't that awesome? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Was he talking about when they were preaching? Or was he talking about I was there in the day when Satan was thrown out of heaven? Is it talking about as the church does God's will, as we advance his kingdom, we are thrusting Satan out of his rightful place? Is that what it's referring to? When we do spiritual warfare on God's behalf, by preaching his word, by transforming lives, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is that what he's referring to? Is that the war? Is there a coming war right here between Michael and the dragon? Well, I would suggest to you that a war happened a long time ago and it's been carrying on all throughout history. It will come to a culmination, but there's going to be ebb and flow of this war. But I believe he's referring to when it first collided, which it says what? Michael, who we know to be what? An archangel. He's the defender of Israel, he said in scripture. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. When did Satan have a place in heaven? And you go, oh, that's way back at the beginning. You know, right? He was Lucifer, the morning star. He was God's right hand man. But then when he got kicked out, there was no more heaven for him. You sure? You ever read the book of Job? You ever read the book of Zechariah? As a matter of fact, Satan has had a lot of access to heaven. Why? Right there at the beginning of Job, God calls his angels in. All right, everybody, huddle up, huddle up, right? They all come up. Who shows up? Satan. Hi. Just checking in. There's no animosity. There's no, what are you doing here? You can't be in my presence. None of that. There's just a calm dialogue. Hey, what have you been doing? Well, I've been roaming around on the earth. You know how it is. I've been kicked out. And I'm hanging out on the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? Yep, actually have. And you know what? We can take that guy down. I kid you not. No, he's actually my man. No, he's not. All you got to do is do this. Well, try it. Wham, 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 beats up on Job. No movement. Well, you're protecting him too much. Let me do this. All right, have at it. Wham, 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 wham. Nails him again. Still strong. You're going, why are they having a dialogue in heaven? Why is Satan able to come and go as he pleases? Why is he up there? All of a sudden you come to the book of Zechariah and he's accusing the high priest Joshua. He's up in heaven right before God going, this guy doesn't deserve it. And you all of a sudden get this sense that Satan is this accusing prosecutor who stands up and is allowed in God's courtroom and all he does is accuse and blaspheme the children of God. 
that he's constantly reminding God they don't deserve to get to heaven. Look at what they were doing. Look at their secret life. This is garbage. Look at all that sin that they're involved in. What? Oh, they're a minister. They're really the ones that can cut this. No way. I can't even believe you died for these people. Look at this. Look at what they've done to you right now. Oh, look, they're worshiping this time. They're doing this this time. Obviously, they don't love you. That is what devil means. It means the accuser. Now, we'd be in trouble because most of everything that he says is what? Right. But we have a defense attorney. And he's better than the prosecuting attorney. And his name is Jesus. And every accusation that comes against a child of God, Jesus has an answer. Yep, you're right. Except I died for that. They're clean. What about this? Died for it. What about that? Died for it. What do you got? Nothing. That's my kid. They're fine. You already took your hit. I took it for them. My father raged out all of his wrath on me. You have nothing on my children. Leave them alone. That is the heavenly view of what's going on. Now, it says they lost their place in heaven. Will there be a time when he's completely restricted? Or was there a time? Did it happen at the cross? Will it happen in the future? All we know is that once he is removed completely out of heaven, he intensifies his attack. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent, what does that remind us of? But the garden of Eden. Called the devil, which means accuser, or Satan, which means adversary, who leads the whole world astray, so he is also a deceiver. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. Now, what do we take away from this? The war is real, and war is terrible. If you feel like you're being pulled apart, you are. Satan will come in at every possible opportunity. We are to give him no footholds. He will seek who he can devour. He will look for weak spots. Even though you are clean as a believer before God, and if you are not adhered to Christ, you're in serious danger because he can use you at will. If you are a believer, though he cannot kill you, he can try to render you ineffective. That will be his goal. He will try to discourage you, destroy your spirit, be able to level you so you do not do anything for the kingdom of God. You are under attack at all times. But all he has to do, in my opinion, is send a demon in, suggest a little bit of stuff, then back off for 10 years while you and I stew on it. And we end up doing all the damage ourselves because we do not adhere to the promises of Christ. We do not stay in his word to realize that we are cleansed and whole and peaceful in the eyes of God. We do not confess our sins that we feel cleansed. We tend to bottle it all up and continue to play our games with God. 
If we continue to lay it out before the Lord, he will consistently cleanse us and show us he's got nothing on you. Greater am I than he. Do not fall prey to that. Do not let him bind you like that. Do not let those chains stay on. I have broken you and who I set free will be free indeed, the Bible says. Oh, we are victorious in Christ. Amen. We must hang on to that. Do we have respect for the demonic? Do we have respect for Satan? Yes, he is larger than us. But at all times, we are shielded by a bodyguard far greater than our enemy. And in that, we take solace. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your protection, your love, and your provision. That, Father, you have done the amazing, which is sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come down and to destroy the works of the devil. You have bound the strong man that we might be able to advance your kingdom alongside you. That, Lord, even though there's going to be a terrible collision, and there has been for all these thousands of years, and it's only going to get worse. Lord, we have hope in you because we know the answer. We know the end. We know, Jesus, that you prevail. May we partner with you in advancing your kingdom in our own lives and in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our nation. May you be glorified in Jesus' name.